This morning we're going to be looking at three brief passages from different portions of God's Word. We're going to begin with Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then we're going to turn over to the New Testament for Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, and Romans 3, verses 20 through 24. You'll find them on page 6 in your bulletin. First of all, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And then Romans 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I don't normally start with a prayer, but I'm feeling a little under the weather this morning, so bear with me. I want to pray and ask for the Lord's help. He does show his strength through our weaknesses. Let me pray. Father, this is your word. and Your people have come hungry for the word. Lord, please feed them by the power of your spirit and the power of the word alone, and may Christ be glorified. We seek your help, both in proclaiming and receiving and understanding your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, Pastor Ben kicked off this new series of sermons about the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is the key to understanding how all the different parts of Scripture and all their variety fit together like a puzzle. It's like a puzzle that when you put all the pieces in the right place, gives you a picture, a picture of Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ resurrected, Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. As Last week, Pastor Ben led us through looking at the first chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. I'm sure that some were frustrated by the fact, as by his own admission, he did not want to take a position in that sermon on all the controversial ways in which Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are interpreted through the history of the church. He does have a position on that. I do too. But he was wise to not draw our attention to the disputes that we've had over how God created according to the book of Genesis because as he said and I have his back on this it's more important that we understand the why of creation the different whys 
that the story of creation as God reveals it tell us. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 is real history. Adam and Eve were real historical beings. And what happened there helps us to understand why we are here, to help us understand why things are the way they are, and to understand why we have still have hope for the future. Why are human beings unique? Why are human beings different than the other creatures in the creation? Why do we have consciences? A vague sense of what's right and wrong. Why don't we listen to our consciences? Why are human beings so wicked? In spite of that, why are human beings so religious? These are the kind of questions that the beginning of Scripture reveals to us, the answers. The Bible teaches that God forms relationships with human beings by the means of a contract, or the biblical term for it is a covenant. A covenant, according to, say, a Miriam you know, Webster Dictionary definition for a, a contract or a covenant is this. It's a formal agreement that forms a relationship between two parties with legal requirements and accountability for not following through on those requirements. So mortgages are contracts or they're covenants. Treaties between nations are covenants or contracts. And marriages are covenants. Palmer Robertson has probably written the definitive book on covenant theology. The book is called The Christ of the Covenants. And in that book, his, he defines a biblical covenant. Now, again, I describe what the world might call a contract or a covenant. But Palmer Robertson describes what a biblical covenant is in slightly more specific terms. He says that in the Bible, a covenant that God establishes with man is a bond or a binding relationship between two parties, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. What he's doing there is taking that definition that everybody would understand as a contract between two parties, and he's saying, what's different about biblical covenants? Well, first of all, it's sovereignly administered. God initiates all the covenants. And when we talk about covenants in scripture we're talking about the covenant of works at the beginning then the covenant of grace which is the rest of scripture but that covenant of grace incorporates individual covenants through individual mediators and so the covenants in scripture they are initiated by God they're not a negotiation God initiates and he establishes the terms of the covenant what are the requirements and what is the punishment for not following through on the requirements? What are the rewards if the other party does follow through on the requirements? And the word in blood in that definition, a bond between two parties, in blood, sovereignly administered, the, the term in blood, that speaks to the penalty for breaking God's covenant. The penalty for breaking a covenant with God is death. Blood in scripture represents the life of humans and shedding of blood represents the death of humans. And so a bond in blood means this is a relationship established between God and men 
that is punished by a violation of the covenant is punished by death. When I was a kid, once in a while, you would hear about two guys, usually, I don't ever remember hearing girls do this, to, to form a connection to one another and to make promises to each other. What they would do is they would take a knife and they'd cut their, their palm and then they would shake hands. And that was the idea of a blood oath. In other words, I'm going to keep this promise based, you know, with the, with the penalty of death if I were to ever violate it. It was a way of trying to emphasize and actually, in a sense, form a very informal kind of contract, but a contract that was based in a penalty of blood. It's a blood oath. As we're going to see later as we work our way through the covenant of grace, we're going to see that when the Bible talks about God making a covenant with human beings, in the original Hebrew language, it doesn't say to make a covenant. The, the actual literal translation is that God cuts a covenant with human beings. And again, it speaks to that necessity of it being in blood, that blood be shed as a penalty for breaking covenant. And so to be in a relationship initiated by God is a life and death matter. Because God is holy, 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 holy. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot fellowship with sin. Sin is punishable by death, a death that is both physical and spiritual because we are both body and soul. And spiritual death is being cast out into outer darkness, away from God and all that is good, the blessings of the covenant. As Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. Or, as Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. It's a bond in blood. In the coming weeks, we're going to be exploring this slowly revealed covenant of grace that ties all of Scripture together. But we're going to begin this morning by looking at the covenant of works. Because we need to understand what we were created to be. We need to understand what we have fallen from. And if we understand the covenant of works and the terms of the covenant of works that God established with Adam and with Eve, it'll help us to more, much more deeply understand and appreciate and be thankful for and be filled with love for our Redeemer that is revealed to us in the covenant of grace. The covenant of works is going to answer some of the big why questions of life. And the first one is why are human beings different than the other creatures that God has made. The world would tell us that we are no different than the other creatures that God has made. We are just more highly evolved. God's word tells us different. When, God's word, when God spoke the universe into existence, he made man and woman different from the rest of the creatures. Why? He made us in his own image so that he could have a relationship with us. God is a relational God. We believe, according to the scriptures, that God is one God in three persons, which means eternally he was, a he was three persons in a relationship with one another, even before anything else was created. So God is a relational God, and he made us in his image so that we can enter into a relationship with him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We get to share in the love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have with one another. And so to initiate the relationship, 
it's interesting what God does after he creates Adam out of the dust and creates Eve out of Adam, the first thing he does is speak to them. Because that's what's so important to a relationship. If you want to know me, you can know something about me by looking at what I look like or watching how I act, but you're not really going to know me unless we communicate, unless I speak to you and you speak to me and my soul gets exposed through my words to you and vice versa. Words are the means of developing a real relationship. And so this relationship between God and Adam and Eve would be based upon the words that he spoke to them, and those words take the form of a covenant from the very beginning. God makes a commitment to these creatures that he has made in his image. And again, that's a very important principle to understand for relationships in general, but especially a relationship with God. Our relationship with God, if it's going to exist, is going to be based upon a commitment, not a feeling. And that's part of the problem with the culture we live in today is that relationships are based more on feelings and not on commitments. But God makes a commitment to Adam and Eve. And he lays out terms of the covenant, the terms of the relationship. What will be the punishment for breaking or violating the covenant on the part of the man and the woman? Or what would be the reward for continuing to obey? It is interesting that how he summarizes what God expects in terms of man being faithful to the covenant, doing what they are called to do to be in a relationship with God. He breaks it down into three basic areas of life, and the first two make a lot of sense. Marriage. God made the woman fit for the man. In other words, complementary to the man, that they are equal in the sight of God, but different. And complementary so that when they come together in the words of Genesis to be one flesh, they are more than what they were as individuals. And in that covenant relationship of marriage, they would be able to fulfill the commandments that God gives to them. And the first one he gives to them is to multiply and fill the earth, to bear children, also made in the image of God, also to be in covenant relationship with God. And to raise those children in the ways and truth of God. And what we're going to see as we go through the later covenants of scripture is that covenants always include the descendants. The the, the households or the descendants of those with whom God makes covenant are always in view in the covenant relationship. And so what we're going to see is that Adam, all of Adam's descendants were also bound up in this relationship that God establishes with Adam. And so marriage, and think about how important marriage is. Aren't we finding out in our own culture how, how important marriage is as God defined it and created it and designed it to be in the beginning? One man, one woman coming together, complementing one another to be one flesh and to carry out the work of filling the world with those who love and worship God. Marriages are the foundation blocks of any society. And I grieve deeply to see what our culture is doing to this foundational creation institution of marriage. The second foundational institution that God established in this covenant of works is work itself. He said the man and the woman were to work together to subdue the earth. Take dominion over the creatures that God had made. Now, it doesn't mean to to use the creation whatever way he wished, 
that he was to oversee and steward and manage the creation according to God's will. Yes, he was to rule, but he was to rule under the authority of God. And so he would produce as God produced in creation. He would serve the creation as God served the creation. He would create as the creator also created. And then finally, the third area is the one that might surprise us a bit. The third institution of a covenant of works in the beginning, when things were still perfect, was the Sabbath. God tells the man and the woman that they were to work six days and rest one day to follow his pattern of working, creating, and subduing creation. They were to set aside their responsibilities of work one day out of seven so that they could enjoy God's creation, enjoy the presence of God without the distraction of creating and producing and subduing the earth. It was to be a day of worship and rest. It was to be a day of trust. One day out of seven, giving it over to the Lord, to trust that the Lord would provide. And so marriage, work, Sabbath, these were different terms of the covenant sovereignly established by God. And to those commandments, he adds one more very specific one. That's what we read in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. To this whole life of obedience and trust and dependence upon the Lord, God adds this command. He says, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. As scripture lays out from that point on, God never tempts people to sin, but he will test faith. And so he tests Adam and Eve by declaring one of the trees, of all the beautiful, luscious trees in the Garden of Eden, he set aside, sets aside one and says, don't touch that one. Don't eat from that one. Have nothing to do with that tree. Now, I'm speculating here, I admit it, but I don't believe there was anything magical or supernatural about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think what made it distinct was that God declared it out of bounds. And because he declared it out of bounds, it was a test to Adam. Would he trust God? Would he submit to his word? Would he serve God or would he serve himself? Adam could have disobeyed in any of these areas of life. He could have disobeyed in his marriage. He could have abandoned his wife. He could have abused his wife. He could have abandoned his responsibilities in his work and taking dominion and caring for and managing the creation. He could have broken the Sabbath. He could have done anything in any of his areas because the, God is the Lord of all of life. But this one test is the one that would really challenge his willingness to believe God, to trust God, to trust in his word. Because it's the word of God that set that tree apart to be different. Sometimes when our children disobey, because of their rebellious nature, which we'll get into in a moment, they want to challenge our authority. And so they'll, if you say, go to clean your room, eat your supper, do your homework, they'll often say, why? We were all like that. That's all of our natural tendency. Why should I obey you? And so parents sometimes are taught that you should never say, because I said so. 
in this culture, it said, oh, you should reason with your children. You should be able to, to explain to them all the reasons. No, sometimes you need to say to them, if you pick up on the fact that they're saying why because they're being rebellious to your authority, you need to say, you need to do this because I said so. Because I said so is enough. Because that's especially true of God. If God says so, that should be enough. And there's going to be many times where you have to obey God because he said so when you don't understand why. And I'm sure that's part of what went into this temptation that Satan would lay upon Adam and Eve is, why? It's, it's a tree with beautiful fruit. It looks tasty. Why should I not be allowed to eat from this tree when I'm allowed to eat from all the other trees? They needed to trust God's word. And so the accountability of the covenant comes into play. This is the accountability of the covenant of works that we saw earlier. He said, God says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Die physically and die spiritually because we are both body and soul. To die physically would be to return to the dust out of which Adam was created. And to die spiritually is to be cast out from God's presence and all that is good, all the blessings of being in a right relationship with God, to be cast out into outer darkness. That's the scriptural language. The rest of scripture, as we follow this path of the covenant of grace later, we're going to see that all of scripture is going to clarify that Adam was our covenant representative. He was the head of the covenant. He was our representative. God was testing him and we, all of his descendants, because that's the way the covenant works, all of his descendants were accountable for how he responded to the test. I want you to realize at this point that, that Adam was actually living by grace. We'd call it the covenant of works, but I want you to notice the grace involved because Adam didn't do anything to earn being born, to being created. That was an act of God's grace to create him in his image. He didn't do anything to earn his place to live in the Garden of Eden. That was an act of God's grace. All the blessings that he enjoyed were gifts of grace. He didn't earn any of them. But, he needed to continue to live in obedience to the Lord, which meant that his life was conditional. It was conditional because he could lose it. And that was unique to Adam. He had to continue living perfectly in thought, word, and deed in order to continue to have access to the other tree that God sets apart as a symbol in the middle of the Garden of Eden, the tree of life the tree that represented being in a right relationship with God. In order to continue eating from that tree, he had to continue to live perfectly. And so if this is Adam as a perfect man, living in a perfect garden, living in perfect fellowship with God, then why today are human beings so wicked? And I'll tell you right from the start here, that no other religion, no other philosophy can explain the wickedness that you read about in the paper every morning. Eight people shot yesterday in a mass shooting. How many mass shootings have we had this year? We had a mass shooting a few weeks ago of elementary-aged children. How do you explain that kind of wickedness? Evolution can't explain it. No other religion can explain it. God's word explains it. Why are people so wicked? Well, it goes back to Genesis 3, 
where it records the history of mankind's catastrophic fall. Satan, who had sinned and rebelled against God before the world was created, entered into Eden by God's permission, and he tempts, he seduces. He doesn't test. The difference between testing and tempting, tempting is trying to get the person to fall, whereas God is testing so that you might succeed and grow. And so Satan enters into the temple of the Garden of Eden, and he causes Eve to sin. How does he do it? By causing her to question God's word. Remember, that's the core issue. Do you trust God's word? That's the very first thing that Satan said to Eve is, has God really said? Is this really what he meant? Is this really what he said? Are you sure? And it says that Eve saw that the the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food and a light to the eyes. Why Moses points that out as he writes this account is to say that she stopped trusting God and she trusted Satan. Satan's word is, that fruit is really good. You're really going to enjoy that fruit. And you know what? It's going to open your eyes and you're going to see things and you're going to be like God. And Eve believed Satan and stopped trusting in God's word. That's the root of every sin. Adam then joined her in the sin. Yes, she sinned first, but Adam was the covenant head. He was our covenant representative. And all it says in the text is that he took the fruit from Eve and he ate. And again, this is a place where scripture, you want to crouch, go, Lord, why? You know, what, what in the world motivated him to make such a catastrophic mistake, to make such a terrible sin? But the Bible doesn't tell us because the motive for doing it wasn't important. What's important is that he violated the covenant. He broke covenant with God, knowing that death was the penalty. On the day you eat of it, you shall die. Die physically and die spiritually. Banished from God's presence forever. We will come to see that this was what theology calls the original sin. When Adam, our covenant represented, was tested and failed and sinned and rebelled and died, we died with him. And so we are born sinners, destined to die physically and born spiritually dead, corrupted in our nature so that we seek our own glory and seek pleasure on our own terms instead of trusting God's word and living life as he has called us to live it. Adam's rebellion has placed human beings, all of his descendants, into a hellish dilemma. Because there is still, we were created in the image of God, and that image of God is not entirely gone. It's grotesquely corrupted, but it's not entirely gone. And one of the ways in which we see that image of God still, there's an echo of Eden still lingering within us, is that we have a conscience by God's grace. That's one way that God restrains us from being as wicked and demonic as we would be, is that we have a conscience, a sense of God's will imparted upon us. As much as it gets corrupted by our sin, it's still there. And in C.S. Lewis's great book, Mere Christianity, he begins that book making an argument for the truth of Christianity by appealing to the fact that 
Every culture around the world has a sense of morality and what's amazing, and he takes you through it. Historically and currently takes you through the cultures of the world and shows you how that morality is amazingly consistent from culture to culture. Sure, there's differences, and we can point out a lot of differences between the, the morality of one culture to another, but what he points out is that when it comes to the basics, they're all extremely similar, amazingly similar, and what that speaks to is that we are made the image of God, and there's still an echo of Eden in our hearts of what's right and wrong. As Lewis goes on to say in that beginning of that book, he says, if no set of moral ideas were truer or better than any other, there would be no sense in preferring civilized morality to savage morality or Christian morality or Nazi morality. But there is a preference. There's a reason why people don't give themselves over to the darkest impulses of our fallen nature. But here's the hellish dilemma. We are incapable of even obeying our consciences in its corrupted state, let alone obeying God's law and being obedient to the will of God. And so what we're left with is a deep, profound guilt that goes to the very core of our nature. We cover it over, we deny it, we drink it to death, we try to drug it to death, but that guilt is there at the core of who we are. So at that moment, when Adam sins, he and his descendants are lost and hopeless. But here's where I want to get to the last why this morning. Why then are we still here and why do we hope for something more? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That's the horrible state that mankind is in, is that God has placed this sense, this conscience, and even this sense that there's more to this life than what we can see and feel and touch and taste. There's this God-shaped vacuum that the philosophers talk about within us. We, we desire something more. Mankind, it's amazing. Atheists are amazingly rare because there's this religious hunger. The problem is in our fallen nature, in our slavery to sin, we make up our own gods instead of looking for the real God, the true God. But there's something more we long for. We have eternity put into our heart by God, but we cannot find out what God has done if he's if left to ourselves. We can't be satisfied by sin as much as we try day in and day out, and we cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. There's something more. And so with the covenant of works broken, God shows grace. Grace immediately appears because instead of striking Adam and Eve dead on the spot and casting them out into eternal, utter darkness, he seeks them out in their shame and he invites them to confess their sins. When he declares the punishments, they violated the covenant, bringing upon themselves all of the penalties, the punishments that come from violating the covenant, ultimately that of death, spiritual and physical, Notice that it doesn't happen. 
What God pronounces in his curses or punishments for breaking the covenant is less than what the covenant of works demanded. The man, yes, he's going to find his work of subduing creation and creating and producing to be difficult and frustrating and painful. But he's still going to live and he's still going to work and he's still going to eat bread according to the words of Genesis 3. And for the woman, yes, she's going to have horrible pain in childbirth and pain in bearing and caring for children. And she's going to have conflict in her marriage, according to the curse in Genesis 3. But she will still live and she'll bear children. There are to be, they are to be cast out of Eden and God's presence. And both will eventually return to the dust and experience physical death. But God is showing grace, and he's showing grace for his purpose. His purpose is summarized in that great verse in Genesis 3. In the midst of the curses, he gives the promise of a Savior. He gives the promise of another covenant head who will come, another covenant representative in who there is hope of salvation. It's interesting that that hope the beginnings of the gospel as we know it is in the context of Genesis 3.15, which is actually part of the curse that God is pronouncing upon Satan for his work in leading humanity into rebellion. In the midst of that, he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is an act of grace. Because as we saw, Adam and Eve formed a covenant by trusting in the words of Satan and they contracted themselves to serve Satan. Yet God says, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to put enmity between you and Satan. I'm going to put enmity between your offspring and Satan's offspring. And from that point on, in the carrying out of God's purposes on earth, there's always been two, only ultimately two types of people. Offspring of Satan and offspring of of the woman, offspring of the curse, offspring of the promise. Light and darkness. From this point on, humanity would be divided. But God here, how can he do this? How can he violate the terms of the covenant that he initiated, that he established? How is that possible? How is God not sinning? by not carrying through on the penalties of the covenant of works. Well, that's why this one offspring of Eve is so important. In the original Hebrew, the word offspring, or some translations use seed, it, just like in English, offspring or seed can either refer to an individual or it can refer, refer to a group. And Paul plays on that in the New Testament and says, you know, that talk, this promise was given to the seed of the woman and that seed, he actually applies to an individual, although it's throughout history of redemption, it's always been applied to the people of God. But here he applies it to one who is the seed who would crush the head of the, of the serpent, of Satan. The one who would destroy the evil one and undo the curse and the effects of sin. Hope in another covenant representative, a second Adam, an offspring of the woman who would somehow defeat Satan, the kingdom of darkness, and provide salvation for those who put their trust in him. 
the rest of scripture would reveal this singular offspring of the woman to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, too, was tested by the evil one, like Adam was. He faced Satan's temptations to doubt God's word and to doubt God's goodness, just like Adam was, in the dry, lifeless wilderness after fasting for 40 days, not living in the midst of a luscious Garden of Eden with every physical and spiritual need met. He was obedient to the will of God, trusted in the word of God, the plan of God, and the goodness of God, while he was facing the horrors of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he, did, he passed the test. He did not give in to Satan's temptation. He was without sin. So as Adam was our covenant representative in the original covenant of works, Jesus is our covenant representative in the covenant of grace. We were lost without any hope due to what one covenant head, what one man did. We are saved by what another God-man did in obeying in our place and dying to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what Romans 5 is talking about, which read earlier, which says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners or put in the place of sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made or put in the place of being righteous. How? Romans 3. We read this earlier. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the works of the flesh. That this righteousness of God has been manifested, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Christ's righteousness as our covenant representative representative is what we put our hope in. We will one day stand before God as righteous because we are given the gift of his righteousness. And our guilt and our sin that deserves this eternal physical and spiritual death was paid for by Christ at the cross as he bore God's wrath in our place. I just want to make one more point with this. The key to understanding salvation, and keep this in mind as we work our way through the covenant of grace in the coming weeks, the covenant of grace is the means by which we fulfill the original covenant of works. I just want you to chew on that. The covenant of grace, which all the rest of Scripture from the fall of man records for us, all of the covenant of grace is the means by which we fulfill the original covenant of works. You see, God's standards haven't changed. That's why when we read from Romans 2, if you look in your bulletin, in Romans 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul is talking, first of all, he's going to be he's getting to the point in chapter 3 where he's going to say, all men are sinners, we are desperately lost because of our sin, But in chapter 2, he lays out the covenant of works. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. For God shows no partiality. When Christ comes back, he is going to judge all people by their righteousness. All men will fail, except those who put their faith in Christ and have been given the gift of his righteousness and who have had their sins washed away with his shed blood at the cross. If you obey, you'll live. That's still just as true today as it was on the first day of creation. 
If you disobey, you'll die. That is still just as true as it was on the first day of creation. But Jesus shed his blood to pay our debt of sin and gave us the gift of his perfect righteousness, which is imputed to us if we put our trust in him. That is why at the end of the day, at the end of history, at the end of the plan of redemption, we are in a better place than Adam was even before he sinned. Because Adam's life in the Garden of Eden was conditional. He could lose it, and he did lose it. Every day, he had to wake up saying, am I going to be able to continue to obey perfectly the will of God, to trust the word of God perfectly in thought, word, and deed? Am I going to be able to do that? Every day, he knew there was a possibility of falling away and losing and dying for eternity. That's why, in a sense, Adam's sin, as horrific as it was, and all the sins that have proceeded from it throughout history is so terrible, in a sense, it's what J.R.R. Tolkien would call a eucatastrophe. He made up that word. It's a good catastrophe. Yes, it's a catastrophe, but God brought good out of it. And that good is that because Christ has already fulfilled all of the requirements of the covenant of works for us as our covenant representative, therefore, we cannot be lost. Our life, the life that Christ offers, John chapter 5, the life he offers is eternal life. We've already crossed over from death to life. It cannot be taken away. Nobody can take us out of his hand because all the terms of the covenant of works for all eternity were fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection. Our life is eternal and it was finished at the cross. And we will be made righteous. Even though we wear a gift of righteousness, that's the beauty of salvation is one day we will be righteous. We will be perfect in thought, word, and deed for all eternity. Only scripture is God's word can explain the depravity and hostility among human beings that we see every day and the deep guilt that causes all the psychological aberrations that we all deal with to one degree or another. And it's the only scripture can explain why there's still this lingering sense of right and wrong and a hope for a redeemer, something better. Being made righteous and right with God is what the covenant of grace is all about. But unlike Adam, we don't live under the pressure of living perfectly. Our hope is in grace, the grace already received by faith in Christ, not the law. But the beauty is, is that grace is transforming us. We are more and more, by the grace of God, learning to love God, trust his word more, know his word more, live in holiness Psalm 119, verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We come as our eyes are opened to the covenant and we fulfill the covenant of works by faith in Christ. We begin to see the law in a whole different light. Instead of it being this judge and condemnation over us, we see the law as a good thing. We see the law as, you know, how I love your law. It's my meditation. Within the boundaries of God's law is safety and blessing and God's favorable presence Within the boundaries of God's law is the abundant life that Christ promises to his followers. Jesus said to his followers, if you love me, keep my commandments. And Ephesians chapter 2, I'll close with this, says, By grace you have been saved through faith. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, the covenant of grace is going to show us how we can be restored to the conditions of the Garden of, Eden, Garden of Eden, but even better, to show us that because of Christ, we can't lose what he has so graciously given.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that in the coming weeks, as we dig deeper into the plan of salvation that you have put in place from before the foundation of the world, let alone from the moment that we needed grace at the time of the fall, Father, I pray that you deepen our understanding, deepen our thankfulness, and deepen our trust in you and what you're doing in our lives. Father, guide us, direct us by your spirit, and may Christ be glorified, for he is our covenant representative, our covenant head, our mediator, our redeemer, and our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.